Good afternoon and welcome to the 189th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of mental health in the pandemic with Asante Houghton. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and do please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 16th, 2020, there are 1,644,416 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 16,873,988 cases reported in the United States, and there are now a total of 306,243 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 302,000 294 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. My grandmother, Jeffy Lynn Stevens Knowles, would have turned 98 today. And she was a person who I was very close to, uh, I was close to all of my grandparents and learned a lot from them. And uh, she was a incredibly funny person and showered her family with love and with wisdom and with care and battled significant health issues on her own, um, but lived a long life. And um, She's been on my mind. I've shared this on COVID calls several times, and I thought of this again today, that even though my grandparents, um, not all of them, but most of them have been dead um, for several years, I still worry about them. And, and I have thought about, um, they come to mind frequently in these times. And so I, with that in mind, I wanted to read an obituary today about grandparents. So let me do that now. The headline is, who dies? COVID took my grandfather, but it wasn't what killed him. This was written by Sarah Jones, a remarkable article. I'm going to read part of it now. This was published November 10th in New York Magazine. We cremated my grandfather the week I was supposed to get married. My grandfather died from complications of COVID-19. The last time I saw him, I wore gloves and a plastic gown and put a face shield on over a mask. I stood next to his hospital bed with my family. The doctor warned us not to touch him, but I did gently, one gloved hand over his. That he should die without touch felt intolerable, a punishment for a man who didn't deserve one. We reminded him that we loved him. My mother told him that the neighborhood bear had returned, that the farmer's market had good carrots. Despite our alien look, he recognized us. The virus was bad, he said, but he'd fight it. He tried. He lingered for several long days until the virus had its way. 
From the evening I got the call that he was sick until the moment my mother told us that he died, he fought. But he was 86 years old, which made him a high-risk COVID patient. His health had been declining gradually for months. The virus attacked his lungs and then his heart with lethal precision. In the end, he was no match for it. That is a fact, I admit it. I write it out syllable by syllable, a ritual to exercise grief. But the exercise fails me now, as it has failed me for weeks, because grief isn't all that haunts me. My grandfather's death six months into the pandemic is more than a tragedy. His fate is as political as it is biological, and I am furious. In the corner of Southwest Virginia, where my grandfather lived, mask wearing is far from universal. In the reductive stereotype perpetrated by outsider journalists, the area is Trump country. When I walked into Kroger after the funeral and saw all the middle-aged men without masks on, I almost approached them. I wanted to know, did one of you kill my grandfather? But the men were a distraction. They were taking a risk, yes, and putting others at risk, but they weren't the real problem. That problem is larger than a few men without masks, or the president who encouraged them. Trump served as a vessel for widespread ideas and as an apologist for older sins. My grandfather's name was Charles Tibbetts. Although he lived in Virginia, he would want you to know he was not from the South. He was from Maine and crossed the Mason-Dixon line only because my grandmother had died and he wanted to live near his only child, my mother. He spent most of his life in a series of odd jobs at a factory and a shoe store, and finally at an estate owned by the heirs of the Curtis Publishing Company, which once produced the Saturday Evening Post. My grandfather kept the grounds and my grandmother cleaned the house. They had followed previous, prior generations of our family into domestic work. Later, sick, in and out of hospitals, and possessed of limited means, my grandfather belonged to a sacrificial category of persons in America. This category has always existed, but the pandemic has exposed it and expanded its borders. It has become so difficult to pretend that American free market capitalism is anything but brutal, that conservatives have largely given up trying. Barely a month into the pandemic, Dan Patrick, the Republican lieutenant governor of Texas, suggested that elderly Americans should be, quote, willing to take a chance, unquote, on their own survival to keep the economy open for their children and grandchildren. Those of us who are 70 plus, we'll take care of ourselves, he said. Sick, possessed of limited means, my grandfather belonged to a sacrificial category of person in America. We spent much of my grandfather's last year on earth navigating an elder care system that was not designed to ensure his survival. Like millions of elderly Americans, my grandfather's care was covered by a combination of public and private insurance, a United Healthcare Medicare Advantage plan, and a Medicaid supplement offered by Virginia. But it didn't buy him decent care. His Medicare Advantage plan offered full coverage for only 20 days of rehab at a time. Once the clock ran out, a $176 daily, $176 daily copay kicked in. For reasons known only to United Healthcare, the company repeatedly refused to spring for a longer period of care. This became a problem. My grandfather needed repeat visits to local emergency rooms for a persistent infection, and a pattern emerged. A hospital would admit him, conclude correctly that he needed rehabilitation, and transfer him to a skilled nursing facility for short-term care. That's when the clock would start. He had 20 days to get better, and if he didn't, he was on his own. 
United Healthcare wouldn't pay for more time and we couldn't afford his care on our own. In July, even after his condition worsened, he was discharged from rehab as soon as his insurance ran out. My mother wound up having to take him back to the hospital and the clock started all over again. Each hospital visit introduced a new risk of infection. So did each stay in rehab. Subject to lax regulation and uneven enforcement, nearly half of all nursing facilities suffer from what one federal report calls persistent problems with infection control. In August, my grandfather once again passed through the revolving door between hospital and rehab facility. He spent two weeks in quarantine as a precaution, then he acquired a roommate with a cough. After he finished a course of antibiotics for his latest infection, he spent a brief interval at home before he had to be rushed back to the hospital. This time he had COVID-19. Hours after I found out my grandfather had COVID, I watched Trump posture in front of the White House on the last night of the Republican convention and boast inaccurately that America was recovering from the pandemic. The camera pivoted to the audience and I saw Wilbur Ross, our 82-year-old Commerce Secretary, nod off maskless and comfortable. Eventually, the hammer will fall, I told myself. Weeks later, it did when Trump got sick. My grandfather was dead by then. And I wanted justice, even though I knew a virus wouldn't give it to me. Nobody deserves death by COVID. And in any case, the discrepancy between Trump's material circumstances and my grandfather's meant that Trump was much more likely to survive. Trump got better. My family hasn't. And neither have millions of others. Misery is a pandemic in its own right. My grandfather's life was important and not just to me. He was a human being who deserved the same level of dignity and peace that more fortunate men can purchase. He didn't have to die the way he did, in a small cold room separated from everyone he loved. All his hard work, all his responsibility meant a pittance in the end. There is no justice but a fairer future. The story was Who Dies? COVID Took My Grandfather, But It Wasn't What Killed Him by Sarah Jones. You can find that in New York Magazine. It's published November 10th. Okay, I want to turn to my conversation for today and introduce my guest, Asante Houghton, and I was really looking forward to this conversation. Let me introduce you to him. He's emerged as a leader in mental health. He's presented across the globe, including a pair of TEDx talks, telling stories detailing the impact of family trauma on mental health. Through his work, Asante was also named as a CAMH 150 Difference Maker, being awarded the distinction of being one of the top 150 difference makers in Canadian mental health. Since 19, he's also been host of Cypher, a web show that takes caregiving stories and turns them into songs. Asante has been interviewing loved ones, supporting other loved ones to spotlight the healing power of connection. In addition, Asante has rediscovered his love of writing, becoming a contributing editor to Inspire Magazine, a wellness resource for youth. And most recently, he has co-founded the Reach Out Response Network, an advocacy organization currently working with the City of Toronto to usher in transformative crisis response reform. 
Having firmly entrenched himself in mental health space, Asante is now devoting his time, energy, and focus to the intersections of race and mental health, seeking to amplify the myriad experiences of blackness across the diaspora in order to shed light on the ways in which being black in a world that seeks to diminish blackness impacts the mental health of black people. Asante Houghton, I love reading that bio. You are the busiest person. I, you've got so much going on. Thank you so much for making time to join me today. Thank you. You know, thank you. Somehow I also make time for a family. So, um, you know, uh, but it's, I, I very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and, and how the pandemic is looking there today. Yeah, uh, I'm calling from Toronto. So, um, or as folks who are not from Toronto, they say Toronto. Uh, but you know, people from Toronto, when they exclude the T at the end there. Uh, but anyways, um, how's the pandemic going here? I would say it's worsening. Um, you know, our first wave was manageable. Uh, and I think during our first wave, you know, everything shut down in Toronto on March 16th. Um, and things were effectively shut down for about three months, like completely shut down. Um, and then we started to slowly open things back up. We were doing quite a good job at that until um, September rolled around and the kids started going back to school. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if the statistics reflect that as a reason why the numbers have started to explode again. But, um, you know, in Toronto, we were down to, you know, double digits, um, you know, case numbers uh, every day for about a month until the schools opened again. And now uh, we're heading to quadruple digits probably in the next few weeks. Um, so it's, it's gotten really a lot worse in the past couple of weeks um, or, you know, the past month or so. And, um, you know, there are more folks in the ICU and, you know, uh, are, are in particular, um, the outbreaks are, are impacting people in long-term care facilities. So um, the elderly, uh, as there have been, you know, as, the, the article you were just reading stated, um, you know, politics gets conflated with healthcare, and um, essentially, you know, the these facilities were privatized some time ago. Um, for I, I'm not certain of the reasons, to be quite honest, but um, by a more conservative government, and uh, because of that, the just level of uh, I, I guess attention that they've received in terms of hygiene and and following protocols and and support through the pandemic, um, you know, it just has been far less than insufficient. It's been quite bad. And, um, you know, just the number, it's not uncommon to hear like 60 people have died in one facility mm. um, and things like that. So it's, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's getting worse. What kind of measures have you had to take to keep yourself healthy in this time? Well, you know, uh, the first thing is that I, 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 probably had COVID way back in April. Um, so, you know, I, I never actually tested positive because at the time they would not test anybody unless you were, we, we, we just didn't have enough tests. So unless you were really bad, they refused to test you. But I was in bed for uh, 22 days, no uh, a, a level of fatigue I've never experienced in my life. Um, and, you know, there was, there was one night in particular where uh, you know, I thought I might die. Um, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, I was just pretty delirious upon waking up. And then my ears started to ring really loudly. And then I felt myself passing out. And I tried to, uh, I tried to, I guess, 
uh, you know, yell out to my wife um, who was, you know, sleeping in another room because we were quarantining from each other. And, you know, the words would not come out. Uh, like the words were in my head, but they, they wouldn't form. And, and that was really scary for me. So I just like made this loud groaning noise to try to alert somebody that I was in trouble. And then I passed out for a few moments. Everything went dark. And then I woke up again. So, um, yeah, you know, and then, so that was my experience with it. Um, and so for me, I didn't have a high fever at any point. I didn't have the cough at any point. I didn't have the shortness of breath. Um, but I had a lot of other, you know, the fatigue was probably the main thing. Um, I, I felt like no matter what I did, I could not eat enough food or drink enough water to be satiated. Um, I was eating like six meals a day just to feel what normal. Um, and which is, you know, opposite of what they say happens. They say, you know, people stop eating. But for me, I just had this compulsive urge to eat. Like I was always hungry. Maybe my body was just working really hard. Um, but, you know, they talked about COVID feet and COVID toes and, you know, the frostbite effect. Well, I got that on, on the back of my hands. So, like, the back of my hands here um, essentially turned black because one just one evening, uh, it just they just started to burn just on their own. Um, like a really bad sunburn and they started mm. to peel off and, and if you've ever had a second degree burn before like it gets really crispy and then mm. peels off that's that's what happened to both my hands um, I don't have the scars anymore but I had the burn scars on my hands for about two months um, so it was a very interesting experience I've never experienced anything like that before wow um, thank you for sharing that and I'm glad you're okay yeah yeah I mean for the most part, I still have uh, bouts of vertigo. That's kind of the lingering symptom I deal with. You know, they say some people it lingers, and for me, uh, you know, I have my energy back. Everything feels normal, except for the fact that I have vertigo um, every evening. It sounds like that month of April for you was just hell, and yeah, month of April around the world was terrible, and. Uh... I'm glad you pushed through it. You know, these long haul symptoms that people are describing also, it's just not a virus that just goes away like the flu and you say, oh, I'm, I was bad a couple of weeks and now I'm back. There's uh, lingering symptoms as well, which is concerning for sure. Yeah. And what was weird about it was that when I got better, I felt okay for about two weeks. And then, you know, these lingering symptoms started to occur. My blood pressure was spiking really high just for no reason. Um, and you know, to the extent that I had to get rushed to the hospital one night as my blood pressure, I, I forget the number, but, uh, it was very high, like above the, the, you know, I don't know, dystolic or systolic, but the first number, the three digit number where it's supposed to be 120 was closer to 200. And the other number that's supposed to be closer to 80 was above 100. So I was doing, I was not great. Mm. Um, and it was, it was just really challenging. Um. You know, my blood pressure hasn't returned to normal, but it's definitely in a uh, range where it's, you know, it's a little elevated, but it's not in a dangerous place. Um, but I still get the vertigo every single day. Well, again, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're, I'm sorry you're dealing with that, but I'm glad that you're feeling okay. better than you were in April. I want to, um, we have so many things to talk about, uh, but I wanted to just get a bit of your background. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the work that you do, maybe starting with the mental health part, and then tell us um, how you found your way into music and the other things that you're involved in. 
Yeah, so, you know, with the mental health piece, uh, you know, the background is that, like, my family has a lot of just intimate experience with it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put out there that my mom, you know, who, you know, constantly gives me permission to tell some of her story, uh, you know, she experienced some pretty severe mental health challenges um, for the large majority of my upbringing, but it became really apparent when I was 14 years old. Uh, when, you know, one day the crisis workers showed up at our house and my mom was suicidal and that's how we all kind of found out what was going on. Um, you know, and that was kind of a turning point for everybody. Uh, my mom, you know, for a couple of years after that just continued to deteriorate uh, where, you know, depression and suicidality became anxiety and became um, psychosis and hearing voices and hallucinating, seeing things that weren't there and, um, you know, having delusions of persecution and things of that nature. And then, you know, for me, I was already kind of teetering on the edge for a variety of different reasons. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And then, you know, I started to experience depression and suicidality and very severe anxiety, um, which, you know, got in the way of pretty much every aspect of my life. It was difficult to leave my house. It was difficult to socialize. It was difficult to really do anything. Um, you know, I, my life became very, very small. Uh, for my grade 10 and 11 years as, you know, I, I essentially just only left my house to go to school. You know, I lived about 10 minute walk, walk away from my high school, which is, you know, pretty convenient. So I would, you know, walk on the side streets to try to avoid people because my anxiety levels were so high. Mm -hmm. And I'd go to school, do my thing, then come home. And that was kind of how I lived my life for two years. Um, so, I mean, those sorts of experiences, um, you know, Essentially, when I was 14, before all this stuff happened, uh, my career plan was to go into uh, computers uh, to be a software developer. That was kind of where I wanted to be. Um, I, I wanted to make video games in particular. As, as a kid, I, I used to love video games uh, growing up. And, but then all this happened. I mean, things became topsy-turvy. Uh, then I just found myself uh, doing psychology when I got to university. And, um, you know, that became my education. I didn't end up doing my master's or, or my PhD or anything like that. Um, uh, so I left university and, you know, about midway through my university career, uh, I started to get some help. Uh, that was for, for the things I was experiencing. You know, by that time, my mom was a lot better, thankfully. Uh, so she pushed me to, to get some help. And so I did. Um, it was, you know, that was a journey in itself, but, um, you know, I was able to, you know, get the help that obviously I wasn't like better at the end of it, but it, it definitely gave me a foundation to start healing and, and taking control of my life again, um, which I think I've been able to do uh, in the decade or so since. But um, anyway, left university, um, had a job working in a warehouse for, you know, uh, our version of Best Buy, uh, mm -hmm. our version of Best Buy, we, we, it was called Future Shop. Um, anyway, so, and you know, at that point, my ambition was I want to, you know, get out of the work, the, sorry, the warehouse and you know, get onto the floor to sell TVs, right? Because I, I didn't know where I was going in my life. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, I got fired from that job and uh, probably the best thing to happen to me. And, you know, I started searching for work and then I ended up uh, in a youth work, uh, community youth work organization, uh, supporting high school students uh, who are marginalized to get through high school onto post-secondary. 
while I was doing that, um, I started volunteering at a mental health organization. Um, uh, and, um, you know, at that mental health organization, uh, there was a new partnership between them and one of our school boards to start having young people come in to talk to other young people about their mental health stories. Now, in, in the office of that organization, there were like two young people, and I was one of them. And uh, they essentially volunteered me to get on stage and tell my story. And at that point, I was super uncomfortable with even reflecting on that part of my life. I was kind of like, you know, the, the hard stuff happened, and I never want to think about it again or talk about it again. And I just wanted to, you know, sweep it under the rug. And, and you know, it was over. I just didn't want to do it, um, you know, because I was ashamed of it. I was ashamed that I had you know, these challenging mental health experiences because there was so much stigma. And it was like, I don't want people to look at me funny. I, I, want, I wanted people to look at me like a quote-unquote normal person. Um, so for me to be normal meant to hide all of that stuff from my past. Uh, but then, you know, here I was, I got on stage and I, I told my story to these 200 kids in the room, these 200 teenagers. And, you know, I thought I was going to get booed off stage, but the opposite happened. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of discovered as a, as a talent. Um, you know, people said I was a natural at, at the getting up on stage and doing the public speaking thing. And so I just started to get more and more opportunities from there. And, you know, telling my story involved into being invited to events and conferences. conferences. And then, you know, I, I made it a focus for me to become better at, like, socializing and talking to people. Because back then I was very, very introverted. Um, very quiet for the most part, very shy, very timid. And, uh, you know, I, I realized I was getting put in all these situations where I had to just learn how to, like, small talk and, you know, get to know people. And um, eventually I started building some networks and telling my story evolved into, uh, you know, contributing to different committees, sitting on different tables, um, and eventually ended up in, you know, employment opportunities. And, uh, you know, landed me where I'm at now, uh, a mental health organization called Stella's Place in Toronto. Um, and we serve young people aged 16 to 29 in a variety of different ways. And I'm a manager of um, a training program there. So. Well, that's a, a remarkable journey. And that I can only, you know, imagine this year, particularly those, you know, that experience that you have and, and the skill that you have has been very much in demand. Can you talk a little bit about the mental health needs of the population that you serve in this year? Well, you know, I think the mental health needs of everybody has come to the forefront. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's just the population that, you know, I serve. It's it's, it's everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, I mean, some of those needs, maybe, maybe many of them probably existed for quite some time. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the pandemic, what it really has done, if anything, is it has revealed to us many of the uh, things that maybe we have not been paying enough attention to uh, in terms of things that just aren't working in society uh, for some people, for many people. Um, when we look at mental health, I, I think it has really highlighted, um, you know, just how important it is to have community and to have connection. And, you know, we live in a society, you know, Canada is, is not, too, too much different than, than the U.S. in terms of values. Um, uh, you know, it's not always portrayed that way, but uh, many ways we're different. Many ways we're very similar. Um, and we're similar in the sense of, you know, individualism. 
and and you know capitalism you know being intertwined in that and, and i think you know when you're growing up it's like you're in this dog eat dog world and you're in the rat race and everyone is trying to do for their their own and do for self and um particularly in toronto like the culture amongst young people is you know who is grinding harder who's involved in more things um that sort of thing and it's become very competitive and there are a lot of superficial relationships and um, things of that nature. And then while the pandemic hit and the folks realized how important it was to form real connections uh, with people and, and not just, you know, in, instead of friendships, colleagueships, uh, so to speak. Uh, and uh, so I think that's really impacting uh, a lot of folks. Um, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm an older millennial and, you know, I'm already married. And, you know, so I have like, you know, a best friend who's living with me. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, that's been extremely helpful, uh, I, I think, in terms of me managing my own mental health is, you know, I, I, I have people in the home uh, every day. Um, you know, I have some friends who live on their own and, you know, it, it's been extremely challenging for them. And, you know, I, 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 I can't imagine how hard it's been uh, for folks who, you know, were used to seeing their friends or seeing their family and they live alone and now they're just, you know, a, a Zoom call or FaceTime is the best that they got right now. And, you know, for us, it's been, I mean, we've been in relative lockdown at varying degrees for, you know, almost nine months now. And, I mean, we had a brief reprieve from the middle of July till, you know, the beginning of September. Uh, but except for those six weeks, I mean, none of us really saw our friends or none of us really saw our families. You know, I don't, I, 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 I haven't spent any time with my mom really um outside of like dropping off groceries for her because you know she has an autoimmune disorder so i mean she's at higher risk and she's in her 60s so i mean yeah. those two things together um you know yeah. it's kind of like it sucks but you know you got to protect the people around you i mean i'm going to follow up on that because it's something that's been on my mind um and i think it's true that these challenges obviously are for for anybody but particularly, I think, for people who may be living alone the first time, maybe college students in their in teens and 20s, and then also for um, older older folks as well who may be alone. I I worry because, you know, loneliness is, is the normal part of life. And loneliness in a pandemic has been something that we've all talked about a lot because most, as you said, we've all been, we may have family groups, but we're not interacting with as many people as we ordinarily would. We don't have enough people to bounce our ideas and get that feedback we need on a daily basis. 100%. How do you, how do you parse the difference from loneliness to the, to that, to something that may be a little bit more concerning? I, Cause I worry that people don't really know how to, how to describe that or how to explain that the whole world has been talking about being closed off and lonely. But to come out and say, you know, I'm lonely, but there's something else going on. I don't feel good. I worry that people haven't been comfortable making those kinds of statements. Is that does that resonate with the kinds of stories you're hearing, people you're yeah, talking to? You know, it's it's funny that you say that because as a mental health advocate who's firmly entrenched in you know just so many different spaces talking about mental health. Um, and you know now mental health is kind of like the sexy term where everyone's talking about it, and and I think what happens there is sometimes um, the, the the meaning of certain things gets uh, diminished or or 
uh, it becomes erroneous in, in a particular way in the sense that, you know, people will say, oh, I'm depressed. And it's like, maybe you're not clinically depressed. Maybe you're going through a rough time. And those are two different things, right? Um, you know, and with, so when, you know, you are, for instance, like starting to experience cl clinical depression or any kind of mental uh, health challenge that, you know, is becoming serious, first thing you want to look at is, is not just the symptomology, but the impact that the, the symptomology is having on your life. It's have your habits completely changed. Are the things that you used to do to take care of yourself, have you stopped doing those things? The things that you used to do in order to, you know, provide satisfaction or fun or, you know, any of those things, are, have you stopped doing those things? Um, has that changed? Um, so, you know, it's, it's easy when we're not paying attention uh, for us to start going down those paths where, you know, all of a sudden, oh, you know, I haven't showered in three days or all of a sudden, um, you know, you know, my friends are calling me, but I'm not answering the phone anymore, you know, and then, then you have to start to look at, okay, how is or how are things, uh, you know, in the world impacting me and am I coping well, um, you know, so really doing that self-reflective piece and, and really looking at who am I when I'm in, you know, a good state of mind and everything is going great. Who am I when a bad thing happens, but I'm still able to manage my life and who I am, I, who am I now, right? And that'll kind of, I think, tell you where you are on that spectrum to know if it's, this is something that maybe you need more professional support uh, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, get through. And the support services that you offer in, in your job, I'm assuming you're doing these all remotely? All remotely. We've gone completely virtual. Um, our organization has actually been very successful in, in doing so. Um, a lot of organizations have struggled, but, uh, you know, one of the, you know, foundation, uh, I guess, tenets of our organization is to try to do things differently in, in such a way that we reduce the amount of restrictions that we have and that we're willing to try. Um, so we very quickly said, okay, well, we can't meet in person anymore. Let's uh, figure out how to offer everything through Zoom. Uh, you know, figure out how to, for instance, uh, you know, one of the bigger challenges was health information uh, not being encrypted in, uh, you know, uh, through platforms like Zoom or mm. any kind of, you know, video conferencing platform. Sure. So we actually called Zoom and we were like, this is a problem for us. Um, one of their guys met with us and said, what are your needs? And we expressed what our needs were. They went back and, you know, a few weeks later, our health information was encrypted properly so we could start doing appointments. Um, hmm. So, you know, we really took, you know, some of those steps at Stella's Place to be able to make sure that we could continue offering service at a time where people were confused. Uh, you know, there was a lot of alarm and, you know, no one really knew what was going on and, and people couldn't see their friends or their family. It was very shocking, um, I think, for a lot of young people in particular who, you know, maybe haven't lived through you know, like, you know, again, right. I'm a older millennial, right? So I've lived through a few things, but, um, you know, some of the folks I worked with, you know, they didn't live through 9 11. Yeah. Right. And it's like, or, you know, they didn't live through like Columbine or these, these big things that happened, um, where, you know, I did. So I guess I had some level of, okay, how do we think about these things? But they didn't. So this is hugely shocking for them, well, for all of us, really, but maybe in a different way for them. And so the, the mental health impacts were, certainly great and we had to figure out a way to support them and and you know we essentially for 
about a month, just kind of stopped doing our regular programming and just invited people through Zoom into like our virtual space. And we would just sit with them and talk hmm. about how things are going. Yeah, that's it must be extra challenging because I know that, you know, in facilities, um, I haven't been yours, but ones I'm familiar with, you know, the setting really matters. The the look of the place, the feel of the place, the comfort level of the place. And a lot of, of cues and interactions are nonverbal too. And so now you've got to figure out how to create this welcoming, comforting space where people feel like they really can unburden themselves. And they're somehow doing it sitting as you and I are now. That must have forced you and your colleagues to raise your game into doing things and thinking through the process of providing care in ways you hadn't done before. Oh, 100%. You know, uh, one, of, one of the advantages, though, is that our organization, what we've done at Stella's Place is we've been very good at engaging with the population that we serve. Uh, so we already had, uh, you know, some of that engagement already and people already trusted us, which made it easier, I think, to um, to make adjustments and to try new things and, uh, you know, start throwing some events online uh, rather than, you know, because we couldn't use our cafe space that we would physically have to invite people in and do the informal mm -hmm. chat and to help people get comfortable. Um, so we had to figure out a different way to do that. So we started uh, doing things like just throwing community events. Um, inviting guest speakers in to talk about serious things, but also not serious things. We did poetry jams and open mics and um, a whole bunch of things just to keep folks engaged and having fun um, and also providing, you know, a, a pathway into, you know, to have developing some trust so we can deliver the care that we want to deliver. Just to circle back to something you were saying earlier about uh, millennial and growing up um, being you know, having lived through disasters and, of course, people around the world these last 20 years, disaster has been a feature of their life. And yeah. it's, of course, not anything anyone would choose. But that also, if you have that experience, you you can kind of see to the other side of it. And one of the things that I speak for myself, I found most distressing throughout the year was just the uncertainty of where this was all going. Yeah. No end point. Month after month. And in higher education, you know, we're going to shut down the university, everything's remote, and then we'll start again on a certain date. Well, that date comes and goes, and we're going to, and the deadline keeps moving. It wasn't until the vaccine became a reality that I feel for myself and many others, you could begin to imagine not an end point, but a turning point. And I wonder how that resonates with your experience in working with folks who, who've been trying to make sense of this. You know, um, I think up here in Canada, I, well, I think a couple of things. I think that we just haven't had the level of devastation uh, that the United States have had. So I think, hmm. you know, for a lot of people, to be quite honest, up here, I mean, they see it on the news and they're like, oh, man, the numbers are high today. But they haven't necessarily been personally impacted. Whereas in the States, I can assume that a large majority of people have been personally impacted. Um you know, where maybe they know someone who's passed away or, or someone who has a permanent disability now because of the, the after effects or where, you know, I think a lot of young people uh, here in Toronto, you know, don't necessarily have that experience. Right. Um, so with the announcement of the vaccine, I think it's, it's kind of like it hasn't had as big of an impact because we weren't looking at the situation as dire as maybe, you know, it actually is, or, you know, as, as folks in the States might have perceived it. Uh, 
but with all that being said, I, I do think that, you know, the, the vaccine is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know that there are a lot of folks who um, are, you know, hesitant to, to trust the vaccine because of the speed at which it was developed. Um, and I, I can't really fault anybody for feeling that way. Uh, for me, I, I've chosen to trust science and um, maybe I'm faulty in having that level of trust, uh, but also as someone who has experienced and continues to experience the things I experience physically, um, for me, I, I just kind of want to get back to my body feeling normal again. So in a very selfish sense, I'm like, give me the vaccine as quick as you can get it to me because uh, I'm tired of the vertigo, uh, realistically. Remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and today we're talking about mental health in the pandemic with mental health advocate and educator Asante Houghton. Um, I want to bring in another piece of this, Asante, and just talk about um, racial inequality and what's been learned this year. Not something that Black people in North America needed to learn, probably, um, but it's something that has, from the springtime on, been brought more into the center part of North American politics, United States and Canada. And I know it's something that you're thinking about and working on and communicating about. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience this year with in light of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement? You know, th there are so many things uh, embedded in that. You know, I probably the first thing is, well, it made me very angry, um, you know, the, the George Floyd tape, which I haven't even watched in entirety to this day. Um, you know, and it, even when I heard about it, it took me about a week before I even looked at it. Um, and, you know, what's, what's been really interesting is that in many ways, the occurrence of, of George Floyd's murder has, like, launched my career in a different direction. Whereas I've always been talking about racism, but no one was ever paying attention, right? Um, so even within the mental health spaces, I was constantly talking about racism, but it was falling on deaf ears. And then the moment George Floyd was murdered, like within a week, you know, because I was talking about it again, I was tweeting about it and stuff like that. Within a week, I was on like three different TV shows talking about racism, um, you know, across the country, national coverage, all these different things that... Um, I wasn't saying anything new um, because this isn't new. Like these issues are not new. The violence isn't new. This is stuff that's been happening for generations, centuries. Uh, you know, so for me, uh, there is a level of frustration and still probably a level of resentment that that had to happen in such a gruesome and visceral way uh, before anyone really said, wow, it, it really is bad. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the response, I mean, well, anyone who's watched the news knows what the response across the world was. Uh, but, you know, Canada is a very interesting place in terms of race relations. Uh, you know, with the United States, I feel like the history is a lot different in the sense that black folks have been 
a large part of the population for hundreds of years. Whereas in Canada, black folks for most of the country has been not non-existent um, for most of Canada's history. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of black folks who have been in Canada for hundreds of years in a very small part of the country on the East Coast um, in Nova Scotia. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, we've had some black folks, you know, in Toronto and, and you know, southern Ontario here uh, for, you know, maybe the past 100 to 120 years. Um, but really, the influx of black folks came to Canada in starting in the 60s uh, when, you know, some racist uh, immigration rules were, you know, the, we got rid of those to some extent. Um, and they started letting a lot of black folks from the Caribbean, uh, you know, immigrate. You know, we're all part of the British Commonwealth. So you know, that, that pathway was there. But anyway, with all this, um, Canada has very much always been a place of wanting to see itself as colorblind and wanting to pretend like race didn't exist or race didn't matter. Um, so a lot of the conversations I've been having have been about just like raising awareness about difference and that it's okay mm -hmm. to talk about difference and that talking about difference or talking about race doesn't make you a racist. Um, and even, you know, if, if you do have racist views or beliefs or ideologies or things that for whatever reason have been downloaded into you, um, you know, it doesn't need to be that way forever. You know, there are things that, you know, you can work on in the same way that, you know, we, we work on any other personal thing that we feel like we need to work on. But of course, people don't want to be labeled as a racist because of, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very loaded term uh, in our in our society. So, um, uh, but I do feel like we, we just need to be more honest about what's really happening. And, you know, so for me, um, with, with, you know, several months after George Floyd, what I've seen is, um, a, a commitment that I've never seen before from, from people to actually like hear what black folks have been saying for centuries and, and to actually see black folks. And what was really, you know, hard for me was, so after George Floyd was murdered, I wrote this article, uh, titled, I shouldn't have to say this. Uh, for Inspire Magazine, and, um, you know, the premise was just essentially saying that I shouldn't have to say Black Lives Matter. I shouldn't have to say, you know, that, you know, we're being diminished in these spaces or these are the things I go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and I talked about, you know, just the casual racism and microaggressions that, you know, occur on a day-to-day -day basis that then turn my mental resources to having to think about these things all of the time where I'm literally thinking about racism every single time I leave the house. Um, it's, you know, there is a sense of it is not 100% safe, no matter what is going on, just by virtue of the fact that I'm black and I might rub somebody the wrong way and I might need to deal with the consequences of that. Um, so something I think about every day, whether it's looking for housing or trying to find a new job or just walking down the street, going to a store in the mall, um, you know, the variety of pretty much every aspect of life you can think of. Um, so I wrote the article and then I had a bunch of, you know, friends of mine who were white reach out to me and say, wow, I didn't realize it was so bad. I'm like, dude, like, how, how did you not, you know, where were you? Right? Like, wow. you know, like how close have your eyes been? Because 
yeah. for me, it doesn't seem like you even have to go looking for this stuff. It just like, do you watch the news? Do you read the newspaper? Do you go on social media? Do you log on to the internet? You know, um, so to have folks reach out to me and say, I didn't realize it was so bad for black folks. Or I didn't realize this was the kind of stuff you have to think about all the time. Or I didn't realize this was what racism looks like through your lens. I didn't realize that police brutality was actually this prevalent and, and this disgusting. Um, and, you know, that stuff made me angry and also disappointed. Yeah. Because, you know, another premise of, of the article I wrote, I shouldn't have to say this, is, is that, the, you know, when people talk about racism, I think oftentimes they talk about uh, glass ceilings or police brutality or, you know, racial slurs and things of that nature. But they don't talk about the aspect of being rendered invisible. So when people were coming at me with these responses, what it said to me was, you actually did not see, like, me as a person. Like, you saw Asante, but you didn't see black Asante, mm. right? And what that means for me. Um, and that was hurtful in a lot of ways. Um, because it's, 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 it's removing a part of my humanity that I cannot and don't want to be separate from. Um, you know? And, and so it was kind of a situation where, well, I had to respond to this in some way and you know that article was one of the the ways i responded to it to say listen we are not invisible stop treating us like we are and you know when we say things believe us and you know see us and not for any other reason than you know to understand uh so that you know other folks who have the privilege and power to make changes can do something about it um you know i think oftentimes you know when when black folks or anyone else who you know a not white person talks about racism um, and our experiences, uh, sometimes white folks, you know, get upset and, oh, they're playing the race card or it's not so bad and, uh, or they want handouts, they want things for free. And it's like, nobody wants that. People just want these issues to be acknowledged so we can solve the problem. And it's not about having a seat at the table. It's about having the barriers removed so that I can make choices. Because racism or racism, racism, narrows the choices that are available to you right you know i was talking earlier about you know switching from and my ambitions from being a software developer to being in psychology yeah my life experience has played a role in that but you know what were my interests back then uh, software development was an interest but i would be in the extreme minority as a black person there right. film was an interest of mine i would be in an extreme in the extreme minority if i went into film journalism I'd be in the extreme minority if I went into So I actually found myself in community work because I found that this would be a space where I could be myself and feel safe. Um, whereas those other spaces, uh, I just knew the kinds of just nonsense and BS I would run into. So I, I avoided them. So, uh, you know, when we talk about choices, those are the sorts of things I mean, right? So if, if the racism didn't exist in these spaces, um, if, if folks within those spaces, even if they were rather homogenous, if they knew and understood what my experience was and saw me as a human being, uh, you know, with a rich story, um, different but equal, then maybe I would have felt like I could enter those spaces as homogenous as they might be and still, you know, have my humanity preserved 
well enough that I wouldn't go home every day and wonder, you know, why am I doing this to myself? I want to, first of all, thank you for for that and, and just this opportunity to learn from you and, and sharing that. And do you mind if I read a couple sentences from yeah, that, from that piece? Such a remarkable essay, and I'll make sure that we post it as well. I shouldn't have to say this. Um, you write, I shouldn't have to consider changing my very African first name on my resume in order to get a callback from a potential employer, nor should I have to omit all the work I've done in black communities, on black communities and with black people so that I can appear as a legitimate job candidate and not like an institution threatening black fist raising Malcolm X adjacent revolutionary. And then you say, not that there's anything wrong with that. That is, uh, first of all, it's great writing. And then it's also just, I, I just, I don't, maybe you can say more about, but I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what it means. I mean, how, what was going through your mind when you were writing that? I, that really stuck me, stuck with me. Well, you know, people are afraid of blackness as like a concept, right? So when, you know, you say, uh, I have prided myself as a black person, you know, you know, the majority might receive that oftentimes receives it as, you know, that person is dangerous uh, because, you know, the associations that people have with black folks is that black folks are dangerous, black folks are violent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, media coverage, things of that nature. And then people will say, oh, what about black on black crime? And then it's like, well, you know, people, you know, commit crimes to those they live close to. Uh, and most people kind of segregate themselves into their own community. So, I mean, you know, people are committing crime against their own communities wherever, in whatever community they live in, all across the world. Um, but anyway, just, you know, these associations of, you know, blackness is aligned with danger and um, to be pro-black, you know, or, or to care about race um, or to care about racism and to just, you know, have pride in yourself people think about you know it, i think it you know subconsciously harkens back to like the black panther movement and, and the way that was portrayed and yeah. you know we see these pictures of you know these black folks with their fists in the air you know carrying m16s and it's like that only happened a few times like people yeah. weren't actually walking around with m16s all the yeah. time that was like you know a few instances in response to you know some threats they were receiving right um so you know for, for for many years, I would just leave off the stuff off my resume about all the things I did with black communities because once I, I, I started to notice that whenever I put it on my resume, no one was calling back, mm -hmm. right? So, and I knew why nobody was calling back because they said, oh, here's this, you know, young black guy who cares about black people and, and you know, which means that, uh, you know, he has some pride in himself, which must mean that, you know, he's at some level dangerous to the institution or dangerous to individuals or what have you. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and talking with Asante Houghton today about mental health challenges and also about race. And uh, let's talk about music now. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear about this Cypher project. Tell us about that. So Cypher is a, it's, it's a web show. Um, and what we do with each episode is uh, we interview a, a real person with a real caregiving story. Um, it's all about peer support. So we interview this person. They tell their story of um, how they've been supported or how they've supported someone else. Um, and then, you know, the artist that we work with, uh, you know, Biff Naked, who is, uh, you know, a pretty big deal up here in Canada for quite some time. And, um, 
a rapper named Decisive, who also was a pretty big deal up here for quite some time. Uh, you know, they they translate these stories um, in, into songs, and uh, um, so each person tells their story, and a song, an original song gets made. Um, you know, featuring a bunch of different uh, high-profile Canadian artists um, from a variety of different genres, and it becomes uh, this mix and this blend. And the reason we call it cipher is because in hip hop, a cipher is when you know, a bunch of people essentially get together and they start freestyling together, right? Um, so it's, it's about coming together and it's about community and it's about um, connection. So I'll, you know, say my little freestyle and the next person will jump off uh, taking what I just said and, you know, go in their own direction, um, you know, linking to what I said, but also going in their own direction. Uh, so the, the title Cypher is really about, you know, just exemplifying that, you know, we're all together even though we take different paths, but when we, you know, we tell each other our, our stories, um, it could really, you know, create this mosaic, which we can all be proud of. And you've been building off of um, letters that you're receiving from nurses and people who are giving care in this COVID year? Yeah, yeah. So what we did this year was something called letters uh, from caregivers. Um, so actual people who are doing caregiving in some sense, uh, whether it's um, security guards, or whether uh, healthcare workers or what have you, um, you know, we received their letters and essentially, you know, uh, in, turned them into a song, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and, you know, a lot of great music has come out of it. Uh, at some point, we're going to curate all the music and probably put it, you know, into a playlist or album format and release it. Um, but it, it's, it's been tremendous to just like, you know, music has been a huge part of my life for most of my life. And I mean, I'm not a professional artist now and I've never actually really been a professional artist. But in, in, in my teenage years and my, you know, early to mid 20s, I used to mess around with music and, you know, get in the studio and record my stuff. And, you know, some of my friends as well. And um, for me, it's, it's been really music has been healing for me as, you know, at a time where I was reticent to express anything um, to anybody, uh, music was the way that I could have an outlet uh, because I didn't feel like it was safe to talk about, you know, what I wanted to talk about directly. But even though I'm very direct in what I say and in what I write, um, you know, it's received differently when it comes out as, as music or poetry than, you know, for me to sit down and have a conversation over tea, right? Sure. Let, let me follow up on that because the, um, the, the words that we receive, the testimonies that we receive from caregivers this year, I think are really precious. And, and, and I mean that in the sense that that they're hard to come by. Like it's it's, and only maybe now. I mean, I heard um, you know yesterday with the vaccine vaccinations starting in the United States, it almost felt like caregivers were speaking somehow differently, um, with maybe some renewed hope and confidence. But you know, people have been too busy, and yeah. they've also seen a lot of things that probably a lot of people don't want to hear. So I want to sort of hear a little bit more about what it what it's been like to work with those those letters as material to have that interaction with caregivers. That's a lot of um, those are powerful words, I would think. Yeah, you know, and stories are so important. It's it's really important. I know we were talking about you know uh, stories of blackness before a second mm -hmm. ago, but I think all stories are really important. So you know, when we're talking about stories, uh, you know, for caregivers or from caregivers in these letters. It really gives you an insight into what it's actually like for them and the things that they have to worry about where, you know, we, we often think about, uh, 
you know, yeah, it's it's dangerous to work in a hospital right now. But what are the impacts of that? Um, you know, what what is the anxiety that you know hospital workers are are facing, um, and where is that anxiety coming from? Is it because they're going home to care for um, a parent or a grandparent who has, um, you know, like my mom, an autoimmune disease or some other uh, indicator that would put them at higher risk? And you know, these were a lot. A lot of that was being expressed in these letters is that it wasn't just about them. So, you know, when caregivers, um, whether they are the nurse or the, the security guard or whoever, um, you know, teachers, what, you know, folks all, who are all serving people, um, you know, fast food workers, et cetera, um, you know, for them, it's like they want people to wear masks, not for their own health but for the health of the people that they're caring for at home, right? Because, you know, your your parent has cancer. So you bring COVID home to a parent who has cancer, I mean, you know, the likelihood of them surviving, you know, becomes a lot worse. Uh, so, you know, we were hearing a lot of those sorts of stories and, and you know, why the protocols, you know, are so important to, to follow, to keep everybody safe. I want to just circle back to um, bring a couple of things together from what you were talking about before. Um, and that's the sort of mental health needs of everyone, but you know, the population you work with, let's say specifically, and this structural racism, which is something that, um, you know, just that term is important to think about for a second. I mean, the structures that surround us are ones that we often don't interrogate. I wonder um, if you could, I'd like to hear a little bit more of your thinking about how mental health needs and structural racism connect. And, and particularly, you know, you talked about, you know, just telling your own story as a form of, of power, but that intersection of being the recipient of racism, structures of racism, and also having you know, mental health challenges that you talk about, I think very bravely, it, you know, as you tell it, of course, it makes perfect sense. But coming to that understanding is a real process, I would think. And I, I bring this up because it seems like something that um, I've heard a bit about this year, that black people in America are also, there's a learning going on here about sort of how these disasters collide and combine. There's an intersection there that maybe people hadn't taken seriously before, and now they're beginning to see it. And I wonder if you could just, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, again, I, I think COVID has, in, in many ways, just illuminated issues that were already present. Mm -hmm. um, so, in terms of the intersection of, of mental health and, and, I guess, structural issues such as racism uh, in our society, uh, you know, I like to use analogies. Uh, I think they're effective. Um, hopefully, you know, no one has had the misfortune of growing up or living in, in an abusive household. Um, but I like to make the analogy that uh, being a black person in, in predominantly white society here in North America um, is very much like living in an abusive household 
in the sense that you are not getting beat down every single day or emotionally abused or what have you, whatever. You're not being abused every single day, but it is happening and happening enough that you're thinking about it every day. And every single time you go home, you have that anxiety of, is this going to be the day where I need to deal with this harmful event again? Um, and, you know, so for us going home is every time we walk outside the house. Um, so, you know, and so if you can imagine the mental health impacts of living in, in a household like that and how that would kind of erode your confidence um, and, and trust in, in the world, but also make you look at yourself like, how do I deal with all of this? I, I, what have I done wrong? You know, there's, you know, there's all these, you know, just things that, that occur within people. And, well, you know, when, when you continue to run into barriers that you did not, that barriers that are in many ways invisible and sometimes unpredictable and you, you keep running into them all the time, it, it diminishes your hope that that you will be able to make something not even make something of yourself, but that you'll be able to like have a comfortable life and be safe, uh, you know, which is something I, I put in that article as well. Um, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, the mental health impacts of racism, they're, they're I would say they're huge uh, because essentially what you're doing is just diminishing someone's power within a society and that, you know, that, that person doesn't feel powerful anymore. Um, and when that happens, it, it impacts your self-concept. You think about yourself differently. Um, you become, you know, more predisposed to, to, you know, some more emotional challenges and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, and there, there are a lot of impacts. You know, another problem is that there just are not enough studies about this kind of stuff. Um, um, I know the States has some literature about it, but Canada has very little race-based literature or, 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 or stats or anything like that um, that has been generated by our academia. Again, the invisibilization of black folks, right? Um, so when you feel invisible all the time um, and you're treated that way all the time, of course it's going to have an impact on you uh, when you know no one sees you and when they do it's to harm you. Um, uh, so... You know, you walk around every day with this, this anxiety or, or, you know, you develop a lack of trust um, or you develop a lack of hope uh, that, you know, things are possible for you. So then again, you know, we bring it back to like things right. like community violence. And it's like, you know, these aren't bad kids. These are kids who are hurt and these are kids who are hopeless. Right. And and they're hurt and hopeless because of how, of how they've been treated, not because of shitty parents. You know, it, it's. It's because, you know, our society as a whole has shown a lot of young people that they are not acceptable and they don't fit. And people who get involved in violence, you know, sometimes, oftentimes, um, it's, there's a level of pain and hurt there. And also, you know, for folks who, you know, go to the extreme and, you know, take lives, things of that nature, um, maybe the value of life is different to them because their lives have been devalued so much, right? Yeah, we're almost up on time. Um, I wanna get, uh, first of all, remind folks that we're talking with Asante Houghton today on COVID calls. And Asante, I wanna ask you one more question. Um, you're, as you said earlier, you like to get on the stage. 
and yeah. work with an audience and and bring them along with you and uh getting up on the zoom stage i know some people are professional at it i'm sure you're good at it um but it's different it's just a different energy so you must be looking forward to that moment when we can kind of be sprung out of this trap and and be back on that stage and communicating in in ways that you're comfortable with and you enjoy are you already working on some uh you know new uh ideas new projects and tell us a little bit about what's coming you know next year when we do get a chance to be back in rooms together and hearing people share and teach well you know i i want to do some more uh ted talks um you know at least one um and maybe I don't know, as, as many as they'll have me, <laughs> but, but any, uh, but the thing I really want to talk about is I want to take this article I wrote, I shouldn't have to say this and turn it into a performance piece, um, that I could get on stage and, and, you know, deliver it as, as a speech or a presentation. And the reason I want to do that is because, um, you know, I, I think it's a powerful piece of work and I don't think that because I think I'm awesome, but because the people have told me that for them, it's been a powerful piece of work and it has been revelatory for them. So uh, I would love to put that on a larger platform and, you know, to get on stage and talk about that, um, you know, and, and just to talk about the intersections of, of race and mental health. And, you know, for me, a lot of that is, you know, myself becoming more educated about those connections as well. Uh, so I can speak about them, and, you know, more clearly and more directly and say, you know, A connects to B in this way. Um, so, you know, I think those are some of my future directions. Also, you know, a, a thing that I haven't really talked about before publicly uh, because it's not a guarantee or anything. Uh, is I've been uh, talking to a, a sports agency over the past several months about, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, some some athletes, uh, professional athletes, um, you know, in the professional leagues in the States, you know, whether basketball, football, whatever. And, you know, um, talking about mental health within those professions because mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's a very taboo topic there. Um, and for a variety of different reasons there, uh, there's not that much trust in, in what um, is being offered by the teams. And I don't want to get into all the politics, but um, yeah. but anyway, uh, thinking about how can we improve the, the mental health of athletes now, because, you know, I also grew up in athletics. I mean, you know, I was pretty good, but not <laughs> great enough to, you know, be on that stage. Uh, but um, so for me, that's uh, an important new direction as well. And I, I think overall, I just want to keep, you know, I, I want to build platforms where more stories can be shared, um, not just my own. You know, I've told my story hundreds of times and now it's immortalized on the Internet. It's time for other stories to be told uh, so we can, you know, build this compendium of human experience that we can refer back to and say, these are, are the things that we actually all have in common. Because I think most of us have a great, many things in common but uh we focus on the differences which is not a bad thing but uh the differences shouldn't separate us the differences should actually bring us together uh, so that's that's kind of you know conceptually where my mind is that in terms of getting back on stage i mean can't wait because it's really hard for me like i feel like i'm a much worse performer without audience feedback sure. so it's, it's just hard to deliver presentations to a blank screen and and to have the same energy and i don't know if the jokes are hitting the same but sure. we don't get any feedback right so it's tough well i'm not surprised to hear you so you just ran through multiple different things that you've got you know working and i do hope you write that uh as a one as a one-man show 
uh, adapt that article, I think it would be tremendous. And um, it's just been an honor and a lot of fun to talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Same. Same from yeah. people. Yeah, I, I just want to remind folks that you're uh, watching COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, we're going to continue discussion that I started over the summer with choreographer David Brick um, about choreography and dance in the pandemic. And tomorrow, I'm going to be talking with David, and he'll be joined. Uh, we'll be joined by um, Aiko Otaki, who's a tremendous choreographer and performer, and he'll be doing just as he did in the summer um, with Ishmael Jones. We're going to be doing a, a talking dance as he did before. So please join us tomorrow. It'll be really fun um, and a way to think about this pandemic differently. And I want to thank my guest today, again, Asante Houghton, um, for his time and for all that he does. Um, stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.